This podcast is now available on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, and more. Please leave a written review on whatever app you get this podcast from. Spoiler alert! When this podcast talks about the television series Game of Thrones, it talks in the context of the most recently aired episode. And when it talks about George R. R. Martin's A Song of Ice and Fire series, it talks in the context of the most recently released book. You've been warned. It's the hope of every generation that the events of history teaches us how to either avoid some things or in some cases embrace some things. In Westeros and Essos, history has repeated itself and often to the same ends. If different situations repeat themselves through the generations, then what can the events of Westeros tell us about its future? Will there be a breaking of the cycle? And what does that say about whether this Game of Thrones universe is deterministic or not? We explore these questions and more in this brief pre-season 8 episode of Matt's Audio Blog. Dedicated to HBO's Game of Thrones and George R.R. Martin's A Song of Ice and Fire series, you're listening to Game of Thrones, Matt's Audio Blog. Hi, I'm Matt, and in this very brief episode, as we are just hours away from the premiere of season eight, I'd like to take just a moment to look at a couple of the recent history and lore releases in the Blu-rays of season six and season seven. We'll look at how these events can be interpreted as cyclic, even how those events have already appeared in the current storyline of the show, and how this affects my view of a deterministic universe in the world of Game of Thrones, the television show. First, let's turn to an accounting of several events from the past during Megar the Cruel's rule of Westeros that we have seen repeated in the series. We'll begin with the Season 7 Blu-ray history entitled The Dragon Pit, a story told to us by Varys and Kyburn. In its time, the Dragon Pit was a marvel of the world. Full-grown Targaryen dragons nested beneath its massive dome. And even on the darkest nights, the walls seemed to glow with the fire of the great beasts inside. As had the site's previous occupant, the Sept of Remembrance, when Magor the Cruel blasted it with dragonfire during morning prayers. The screams of the dying men echoed through King's Landing all day, and a pall of ash and smoke hung over the city for a week. But as it dissipated, so too did the rebellion of the Faith Militant. The Sept of Remembrance faded from memory, and Magor decided to replace a monument to the gods with a monument to his family, the Dragon Pit. What strikes you about this last clip? For me, it's about what was at the location of the Dragon Pit prior to being created, as told by Kyburn. What does the story of Megar raining dragonfire down upon a sacred sept and crushing a faith militant rebellion remind you of? For me, the comparison is obvious, as it probably is to you. This distinctly reminds me much more of the current event of Cersei using wildfire to destroy the sept of Baylor, all to dispatch what she perceived to be a faith militant that had in many ways taken over her son's reign. If you are a person who actually likes Cersei, then you may find this comparison a little disturbing, comparing Cersei to Magar. But the facts are completely clear. 
both Mager and later Cersei used fire, a fire more powerful than just normal fire, to destroy a sept, and with it, both perceived a rebellious faith militant. But this is not the only historical comparison we can make from this singular extra in the Season 7 Blu-rays. Here's yet another. For after the Red Keep was finished, Magor had hosted a three-day feast for all the builders, stonemasons, and carpenters who had worked to build it. At its conclusion, he slaughtered them, so that only he would know the castle's secrets. What's another event in recent history that Kyburn's story reminds us of? Perhaps the Red Wedding? In the Red Wedding, Walda Frey, who had received permission from Tywin Lannister, feasted the Starks during the wedding celebration of his daughter and of Edmure, Tully, and then proceeded to slaughter them. A breaking of guest rights, which Bran Stark explains in his story to Mira and Jojen, is a very bad thing to do in his season three story about the rat cook. Now compare this to Mager, whose years before had brought all the builders to the Red Keep all to one place for a feast. And with all of the pre-intention of murdering every last one of those builders. The parallels, once again, are obvious, but also striking. In both of these cases, history has nearly repeated itself to the letter. But what does this mean for a deterministic universal model? A model of the universe where fate defeats choice, or perhaps choice is predetermined as part of fate. Though we've looked at only two comparison examples thus far, what is something we can note about all of it? I find the common threads of politics and power at the heart of both, naturally. Does this suggest a general frailty in humankind? That any ruler would make the same decision no matter what, or who, or when? Or is there determinism involved? In Mager's case, the power was already his, even though not by natural succession, and these acts were an effort to maintain his power. However, with Cersei, we have to examine a couple of things. While her motivations for the destruction of the Sept was to protect her son and herself from the Faith Militant, and her father's help in orchestrating the Red Wedding was about preventing the loss of power in a war, Cersei also was aided by a twist of fate, for she had no idea that Tommen would leap to his death after the Sept was destroyed. The power of being queen was handed to her by fate, giving her the same throne with which to apply power from on, just as Megar had enjoyed. Still, it did take the twist of fate of Tommen dying, and it seems unlikely to me that Cersei would have seized power from her son the same way Megar had from his family. A deterministic model of history repeating itself needed this twist of fate of Tommen dying. But what does it mean? First, let's look at another accounting of Varys in this very same Dragon Pit feature. For more than a century, the Targaryens housed their dragons in the Dragon Pit. But dragons are not horses to be stabled or hounds to be kenneled. With each generation, the dragons became less, less massive, less swift, less long-lived. 
and less invulnerable. But the last dragon grew no larger than a cat, and its death earned Aegon, third of his name, the epithet Dragonbane. What is a dragon pit without dragons? Then came Daenerys. Now dragons once again darken the sky, but they will never darken the dragon pit again. Daenerys has learned the folly of chaining her dragons. The dragon pit is and will remain a ruin of a bygone age when kings and queens flew high above their countrymen. Here we learn, as was told to us in the show by Tywin Lannister, that chained dragons are diminished dragons. Before we get into Daenerys' side of this, let's focus on what Kyburn said as well. A chained dragon becomes less invulnerable. Think about this. Would the Night King have been able to kill and then raise Viserion if Viserion had not been chained for a while? Now, of course, it's an answer that we're never likely to have. But this would, again, show a cycling of history. Vulnerable dragons. There are ways to dispute this, of course. The example of Drogon with the spears from the Sons of the Harpy or the catapult from the loot train battle. Yet, in neither of those cases, Drogon did not die. But Viserion did. Remember, Drogon was never chained. Viserion was for a while. Of course, the biggest feature of this last clip from the Dragon Pit feature is the fact that Daenerys learned the folly, quote-unquote, of chaining dragons, as Varys tells us. But did she? Remember, it was Tyrion, with his knowledge of the history of of the dragons from the past that made the choice to unchain Viserion and Rhaegal. Daenerys was nowhere around at the time, and this is where determinism once again comes into play. If Tyrion does not kill his father, or even be at the wrong place at the wrong time during Joffrey's death, for that matter, does he end up in Essos at all? Did all of these events have to occur for the simple purpose of making Daenerys once again realized that chains were not the answer regarding her dragons. And here's something that will drive people in the determinism camp and the choice camp, both of them, crazy, I'm pretty sure. What if the determinism applies itself in the opposite way only for those who have a greater role to play in the ultimate deterministic factor, the long night? Take a look at Magor's time. The stories of the White Walker were already old ancient stories by then, like the ones that Nan would tell Bran in Season 1. And we've seen that Cersei and Walder Frey and Tywin Lannister repeated Magor's plays to the letter, and none of them seemed to have any interest in what was happening beyond the Wall. Those characters seemingly have no role in the next Long Night. Yet Daenerys and Tyrion, we see, now clearly do. And is it determinism that they did not follow the choices of history's past, so that they are part of the determinism of the Long Night facing them now? And will determinism have an influence in that choice-making, even without their knowledge? Now, naturally, this is a small sample size, and I wish I had taken this investigation on much sooner than the night before season eight premieres. But I'm going to currently speculate, not theorize, mind you, merely speculate 
on the evidence that I have right here that determinism is necessary for the ultimate abolishment of the Westerosi version of The Walking Dead. In other words, the White Walkers cannot be contained as they were in the past. They must be destroyed. If different choices aren't being made, then the White Walker events might cycle over and over and over again. As the old Three-Eyed Raven told us in the Season 6 Blu-ray histories, the White Walkers were created, then the Children of the Forest and the First Men made a pact, then the White Walkers came back and were defeated by the Alliance of the First Men and the Children of the Forest. Then they were contained behind the wall, and now they return once again, cycle after cycle after cycle. Fearing extinction, the children combined their powers for one last spell that would save their people and their land from the invaders. By themselves, the children were too few to resist the onslaught. But if they could turn men's numbers against them, after hundreds of years and untold death and destruction, the wisest heads of the children and the first men finally prevailed. The children couldn't win this war, and the first men didn't want to win, fearing the costs of victory. Heroes and rulers on both sides met upon an isle in the god's eye to form the pact. The children gave up all the lands of Westeros, save for the deep forests, and the first men swore that they would no longer cut down the werewolves. Thus ended the Dawn Age and began the Age of Heroes. Yet after the dawn must come the night. The great evil that the children unleashed in the war returned centuries later, and only an alliance between the children and men defeated it. Now it comes again when the children are a shadow of what they were, and men have long forgotten. But the trees remember, and Brandon Stark must learn. Or, as we watched the first men, so we will watch the last. Must learn, the old raven says. And this is where the change of choice is important to determinism. The White Walkers were created, then a pact stopped them, but then they returned, and then they were contained, and now they were returning again. And Bran Stark must know what choices were made so that alternate choices can be made, according to the old Three-Eyed Raven, anyway, in this Season 6 Blu-ray extra entitled Children's of the Forest versus the First Men. And now we're back to the question of, is it deterministic, or merely cyclic, or is it all choice? And the answer I propose is one that drives people crazy. It's all of these rolled into a single factor of determinism. Different choices will be made because they have been determined to be made this one last time in history. These events are the determinism of this Westeros universe. And how do we know it's all deterministic? Because there are people who have known all along that these events were coming. Listen to what Samuel Tarley tells us in the Season 7 History Extra, Prophecies of the Known World. 
Even the wisest maesters, however, have no answer for the Red Priests who prophesy about the return of the Long Night. For thousands of years, they've kept watch for the return of the prince who was promised, who will be born amid salt and smoke to drive off the darkness once again. Prince of what realm? Promised by whom and to whom? The prophecy doesn't say. But at the very least, it confirms that not even Essos escaped the long night. I imagine the Cataclysm must have confused the East. Unlike Westeros, they wouldn't have known of the Night King, or the White Walkers, or the war waged by the First Men and the Children of the Forest. They would have just seen a terrible winter descend and linger far too long until spring magically returned to the world. Yet somehow, maybe from passing merchants, maybe in their fires, the Red Priest saw the truth. Now the truth is here again, for anyone to see. But the Maesters refuse. They debate and question and doubt, not to choose the wisest course, but because they're too used to doing nothing else. Most prophecies might be lies, but not all of them. The long night is coming. If we don't believe that, well, we won't need any prophecy to tell us our future. Prophecy is naturally a big part of cluing us into the possibility of determinism. However, as we've also seen, visions in the flames do not necessarily come true when literally interpreted. We've definitely seen that in the case of Melisandre, yet the prophecy of the return of an Azor Ahai-like figure has been prophesied by the priests and priestess of the Lord of Light religion for some time. It's a prophecy that tells us of another long night. Why would there be another long night except for the cyclic Westeros history? The most likely unanswerable question to ask regarding the Lord of Light religion is this. Was this Azor Ahai prophecy and the prophecy of the Long Night envisioned by a single person or multiple people? And this makes a difference. To me, if more than one person is experiencing the same thing or the same vision of the future, it's more likely to add to the fuel of an argument for determinism. And I use this as an in-show example. Think of Brand's season four vision and Danny's Season 2 House of the Undying Vision. Both get a glimpse of an empty throne room with snow falling in it, and this seems to make the event more likely if the universe is predetermined. Those two exact same visions by Bran and Danny of the Red Keep might be interpreted literally or in metaphor. You can't simply say literal. For instance, I might choose to interpret this vision as being much more metaphoric than, say, Melisandre might, where she might see a hole in the roof and snow falling, and she might think that it was a literal attack on the Red Keep coming from maybe the White Walkers. I might merely interpret this as showing everyone that in the next time of winter, the time we are in now, the Iron Throne will become vacant. And once again, as I drive those firmly in the determinism camp and those who are not absolutely crazy, I will say I believe this is also determinism at work through choice. In the end, I speculate, and I emphasize that I am speculating, that the throne must either be won by Danny or John or kept by Cersei at some point before winter ends. But before winter ends, 
a choice will be made to disband the power of the throne, breaking all of the historic cycles that have surrounded that throne. Historic cycles like the ones that we've been looking at in this podcast. But what about the in-between now and then? Who might be the last to sit there on that Iron Throne before the decision to disband it is made? Some would like for John to be, or maybe for Danny to be, or maybe you're a person who would like to see Sansa, or maybe even Gendry, rule, maybe briefly. And now I'm stretching into full-on speculation, but listen to this passage from Viserys in the Season 7 History Extra entitled House Targaryen. Until Aegon. When he looked east, he saw the past, old, tired, dead. But when he looked west, he saw the future. Gold in the ground, gold in the fields, and no dragons in the sky but his. He and his sisters, Rhaenys and Visenya, flew over the great continent, ostensibly visitors to a strange land. But when Aegon returned, he ordered construction of a massive table carved in the shape of Westeros, with all the notable rivers and mountains that they had seen. A personal map of the Seven Kingdoms, then ruled by seven squabbling families. Together, the Seven Kingdoms made Westeros, a realm that wasn't yet a realm, ruled by great families who didn't know what greatness was. Aegon would teach them. This tells of Aegon coming to take Westeros and create the Iron Throne, right? But let's backtrack for just a second. Viserys tells us in this feature that Aegon the Conqueror saw the East as the past and Westeros as the future. If we're looking at this from a cyclic or deterministic standpoint, there are a couple of things to interpret here as we look in regards to Daenerys. For one, Danny's far past is actually Westeros, while most of her life, her present, has been in Essos. Though now, one can say that Essos is indeed in Danny's past as well. Essos is not, as Viserys puts it, tired and old, however. Danny's broken the old of Slaver's Bay by eliminating slavery. The West has come to the East in this regard. Is this part of a cycle that now also has been broken by a choice to a deterministic end? Or maybe one can see that this is part of the cycle that must repeat before the deterministic end of having no rulers occur. Maybe Danny will come with her dragons, just as Aegon did, and create a kingdom for herself, leaving her Essos past behind and seeing a future in Westeros. Or, if you believe this Aegon event will cycle once again, perhaps it will be in another way. For instance, you can just merely say that the fact that Danny is a female, as compared to Aegon being a male, is the cyclic break. We learned at the end of Season 7, however, that Jon Snow's true name is Aegon. Is he the Conqueror, and thus a cyclic repeat? And in either case, Danny or John, let's make this comparison. Aegon conquered Westeros, married to a member of his family. 
can't remember if it was both sisters or just one, but he was definitely married to at least one member of his family. What if John and Danny just don't care what others think of their relationship? What if this cycle of looking down on incest is broken yet again, as it was when the Targaryens ruled before? It would be unfortunate for Jamie, I think, who only ever wanted to love his sister, to have to see the very thing that people taunted as unthinkable for him and Cersei to be okay for an aunt and a nephew. But what about this? What if there's another interpretation for John being Aegon? Is it possible that like Aegon of old came and took Westeros with his sisters, whether he was married to one or both of them, I can't remember, or not, is it possible that John might use the only two girls that he's ever known as sisters, Sansa and Arya, to conquer King's Landing with him instead of Daenerys? Now, please don't get me wrong. I don't want to say that John is going to marry Arya or Sansa or both of them or neither of them. It's unlikely. Although you can say that John would be marrying his cousins instead of his aunt. So I think that's a slightly less distant relation. Any of these scenarios might be considered both a repeat of the cycle and a deviation to ferment it into place so that it doesn't have to be repeated again. And if the throne is vacant at the end of all of this, then the cycle won't be repeated again. And I promise that that concludes all this wild speculation that I've been doing for the last couple minutes. Those who listened to me on Podcast Winterfell when we were talking about the books know that I'm a strong believer in the fact that George likes to present information in his books that proves that history repeats itself. And I believe it is for the purpose of determinism as well. The cycle must be broken for the story to end. And with that, we'll also end this podcast. Season 8 is upon us. It's only hours away. And as the season reveals itself, you can find all of the information regarding this particular podcast covering that season and how to contact us with your thoughts about Season 8 at mattsaudioblog.com. I'm going to be joined by the sirens of Ice and Fire, Holly, Stephanie, and Kelly, when you next hear this podcast on Monday morning with our initial reaction to Season 8, Episode 1. I hope you enjoy the premiere. been listening to Matt's audio blog. Find all contact information, back episodes, and podcast app links at mattsaudioblog.com.